listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. Today's episode is a real cracker. I'm part of a series of great episodes we've got lined up for you in the month of September. Laurent Rousseau is the Deputy CEO of Score PNC and is a rising star in this top-tier global reinsurer. In this podcast, we talk about the dilemma facing Lloyds of London, the insurtech phenomenon in the era of the now publicly quoted Lemonade, the intimate details of what is driving the hardening global insurance and reinsurance market, the class of 2020, and the boom conditions for specialty insurance. If you want to know what's going on in the world, you need to have access to smart and well-informed people like Laurent. And that's what The Voice of Insurance is all about. I've known Laurent for a few years now, and I very much want you to meet him. We've got a lot to get through, so let's get straight on with the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. Um, I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes and let's get on with the podcast. Laurent, thanks so much for giving us the time to talk to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you. Let's, talk, let's just jump in and talk straight about the marketplace. It couldn't be a more interesting market. And I suppose in reinsurance, it's all about capital in one way or another. Do you think this is a market that's being driven by any kind of real capital shortage? No, I don't think so. And if you look back probably past 20 years, Capital has been flowing through every single asset class, every single risk-bearing business. And capital is, is, is a commodity. So as such, capital is available. And I guess the res- response to COVID-19 from central banks and governments have been to add even more capital. So if anything, we are now uh, left with multiple times more capital in the, in the system than what we were nine months ago. So the, the, the shortage of capital is not the actual matter. The actual matter which drives the market correction is the remuneration of capital and the risk awareness driving the expected return on that capital. And this is really what had been already changing if you look back a couple of years ago on the insurance market. And really this, this hard market had been so far insurance-led, which is quite... Um, not unique, but original. Most of the previous hard markets were reinsurance-led. That one was insurance-led and progressively gathering momentum. And I really think that um, the, the COVID event is accelerating that and making it progressively a, um, a reinsurance 
hardening market. But so what's really the driver here is, is what should be the right remuneration of that capital in, a, in an environment where the risk aversion has just shot up to the roof. Is it really about discernment? Is it just that you're saying, I want to make sure I hit my returns this year and I'm not going to change my view and I'm going to decline business if it doesn't prospectively hit my return these days. And it's nothing to do with this. You'd say that you've got plenty of capital available to you, but not at the wrong price. Yes, absolutely. And you want, you want that, I mean, capital allocators, if you wish, investors, insurance capital providers want safety and, and, and they want to manage downside. So the question is, if you put your capital at risk, what will be the remuneration for a perception of a risk that has really increased? So it is completely discernment, as you say, and the expected return on that capital, way more than do you really lack capital. I mean, there, there is a little bit of a capital shortage, if you wish, in the, in the ILS space, and it's because the capital is trapped, the capital is blocked. And here the latest stats as of the half year 2020 show a, a small contraction, so here there is more of a fungibility of the capital, which is trapped. But by and large, there is way too much capital in the system uh, altogether. You mentioned COVID-19. So is that really going to be the straw that broke the camel's back then in terms of to really stiffen the resolve? If it didn't already need, you didn't already need more resolve. This is now you finally, you've got so much more material uncertainty going forward. Mm. You're, you're going to be telling all your seasons, well, if you want us to be around, then we all need to be in this together and need to increase pricing across the board. Yeah, it, um, it really reminds me of, um, of the, the timing and the catalyst when I entered the industry in the early 2000s. There had already been a progressive hardening. The casualty crisis had been already doing its, its work. And then, bang, you have this, this major cat, 9-11, which precipitated a number of already existing ingredients, if you wish. And uh, will, will COVID-19 act in a similar way? Look, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think there are some very strong reasons to believe so. And the, Does it bring uh, that fear factor that you really need? Because, you know, I suppose I'm going back to 9-11, we, we're talking about, goodness me, is terrorism insurable? I remember at the time yes. saying it's not really modelable, it's not really insurable. What about aviation? It's crazy. I didn't realise there was so much clash in, in everything. And there really was the fear, you know. Absolutely. Do you think COVID's yeah. going to give that fear factor that's going to boost pricing um, it creates uncertainty and with that uncertainty clearly uh, that fear factor i think something that we probably haven't measured completely and we all tend to have in particular in london market a focus on p and c lines but if you think on the life side this is the first fat tail event this is the first dot on 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 the fat end of the tail when the previous one was spanish flu at a time where the economy had nothing to do with, with what it is and then the world had nothing to do with what it is. If you look on the PNC side, I mean, since the 80s, we have actually fairly reliable curves, modeling. Each time we have an event, we can plot it on a curve. On the life side, it's actually the proper fat tail event. So I think alongside the fear factor and the general uncertainty, I, the question that I have as well and, and things that we are discussing at SCORE is to what extent is it going to affect the life insurance and reinsurance market? To what extent are we going to have more price elasticity on the life side? We know we will all be used to saying that, you know, life insurance and reinsurance is an actuarial business. You look at longevity curves, there's some mortality peaks here and there. But by and large, the, the price elasticity was, was extremely low, if any. And uh, I think there is a, 
I would say, a, an event discovery, a prize discovery process on the life side, which I find personally very interesting as well. COVID-19, do you think this is the sort of loss that a smart underwriter can somehow outrun? Or is it just too late? And for a business like SCORE, I presume, because you're everywhere and you're almost permanently on risk for everything in different ways. The one area that we are not operating in and which got hit pretty hard is the contingency business. We're not a contingency player, so admittedly we have some residual exposure in certain treaties, but that's, that's marginal. But the, we only disclosed our COVID exposure in Q2 because in Q1, when, when we saw the first hit from our competitors, was really coming from the contingency event cancellation business. So, and that's a market that is very specific, yeah. uh, which we consciously didn't participate in. So we, we've avoided that one. But other than that, I think the, the contagion of COVID-19 effects is general. I mean, it's the very nature of that event. I mean, the event is, we, we still speak about it as if it was well known and, and in the past. I mean, it is going on, right? The, the event is still happening. So uh, the, drawing any kind of conclusion on it is, uh, by definition, premature. It hasn't ended just yet. But we know for sure it's, it's global. It's continuing everywhere. So it's very hard to, to avoid any... Um, any kind of effect and impact. So take it from what you're saying, you don't simply see that um, contingency might be a, a good opportunistic uh, entry point for SCORE now to take on some new risk? Or do you think that's even insurable now to include second wave or that kind of thing as the economy reopens? Yeah, Is it so insurable? We don't see it as an entry point. We don't see it as an opportunity. You could, of course, provide some covers. Like we see some pandemic covers being brought in, but if it's to have a super expensive product or a cheap one with no value, we just don't think it makes sense. So even though we see some competitors getting into the contingency market, we don't see it ourselves as, as a primary of interest for now. Laura, let's go back to what you said about this being more at the beginning of this hardening phase, that it was an insurance-led thing. And that now you said that, that COVID might have now made it a reinsurance-led thing. Normally, we'd be talking around this time, or certainly next week or the week after, we'd be hopefully sitting in your, in your lovely lounge in, in Monte Carlo, where, of course, we start to talk about 1-1 renewals. So feeding that, do you think the 1-1 renewal will be the point at which the reinsurers really do take control of this market hardening? Yeah, so I, I don't want to, to kind of pick on words. Taking control is, is not what we would look to do anyhow. And in reality, we, we've already had a few renewals that have been tested by covid the 1st of April renewals are the first one, actually. Even though it was only just starting, we had some uh, exclusions discussions as early as 1st of April uh, renewals. And then June, July were obviously a very important date. So what we saw then, and, and, and those trends have been accelerating, so I would expect them to, to keep gathering pace till 1-1, is indeed having a more balanced discussion on the renewals. For sure, there is a live event. There are exposures all over the place. And uh, so I think that leads to much more a balanced discussion than what we've seen in the past 15, 20 years, which was really a, a softening market, soft and softening market. So I think there's going to be a lot more balance, that's for sure. The second point I would say is um, we already, and we already see it, we are in discussions with a number of our students on their uh, known exposures. And here, the discussions have been on actual live claims. So the discussions have already started way earlier than what they would have with the seedings teams, with the, the range buyers. And um, I think the natural discussion, and actually we're going to keep 
uh, Monte Carlo, but in a, in a virtual way. So we have kept, if you look at my diary this year for Monte Carlo, it's pretty, pretty much as crazy as, as what it is when we are live in Monte Carlo. Just the difference is that we're going to be just like today with you, Mark, behind two screens. So we're going to have a lot more of a balance talking of the actual claims. Some of our students, those who had to communicate to the market, so listed insurers, Quite a few of them have taken some assumption on how the reinsurance covers would respond. And if you look implicitly at, at how reinsurers have communicated on their own exposures, they have made their own assumptions on how the covers would respond. And, and if you could make that, ex- that exercise of comparing um, the pitch. So are there going to be some differences of opinion? Are you, are you there, there are, there, of course there are. Uh, of course there are. And the question is, how did you bridge these? And the renewals are an important bargaining power element, whether it is in favor of the students or the, or the reinsurers, I think it's, it's too early to tell. And at this very early stage of one one renewals uh, renewal process, I can only hope that everybody will be uh, reasonable and, and long-term focused, not trying to take control, as you say, or kind of be oblivious of the situation. And under those circumstances, I presume you, you're always a kind of partnership reinsurer. If you're a student who's coming up for renewal, if you've already perceive that they've done a lot of that hardening or that market correcting for you, then are you just happy to just to continue to support them? And others, I presume that haven't, you don't feel have done enough, you're really going to lean on them, I presume. Absolutely. And and about two thirds of our business is proportional reinsurance. So by nature, we are very defensive, close to the insurance markets kind of reinsurer. We're not, we're not operating so much in, in, in excess of loss and, and so on. So we're going to be very keen to understand what are the measures being taken in the primary operations and indeed ensure that commissions and so on. The proportional cover is, uh, is, is allows us to uh, take advantage of those uh, measures being taken. Yeah. Going into these renewals, what is your current feeling around rate adequacy? Are you getting a good enough price for your cover at the moment? Mm. Well, of course, I would have a a biased view on, on the matter. So I'll try to, to be as, as balanced as, as, as possible. I think you really need to look at, um, to differentiate short tail from long tail, because alongside COVID crisis, you've had interest rates in particular in the US. I mean, we are, we know that for many years, we're going to be in, in pretty low interest rate environment. And this alone has a hit on long, long tail classes. So we have seen, of course, long tail classes respond uh, not as much as short tail. And what doesn't help is that we lose financial income on, on those uh, long tail classes. So I think the, the adequacy is clearly not the same for long tail classes than what it is for short tail classes. And so I think we, we've seen a number of, of short tail classes responding pretty well. And here the, the rate adequacy is, has been improving. Is it there? I mean, there it's, it's, I want to avoid sweeping comments. I mean, Asia-Pacific has nowhere near hardened as, as what we've seen in the U.S., for example. But by and large, the shorter classes have been responding a lot more. Many of the market subsets are indeed adequate and, and more than adequate. We're making good returns again, uh, which we hadn't seen for a while. In, in the U.S., it's second year of, of rate hardening, of market hardening. So it's year-on-year increases. So we're getting to some interesting situations on, on property classes, in particular in the U.S., Asia remains very competitive, with the exception of a few markets like India and, and Australia. And in EMEA, I mean, that region, if you look at Europe really, has remained, I mean, rates haven't responded so much. So here we would expect uh, rate adequacy to have to improve from where it is today. Personally, if you ask me, Mark, I think the, 
the hardening that we are going to see in reinsurance is going to be a progressive one. I mean, this is a, a market, an event that is not as a hockey stick reaction like you would see in a property cat event. This is much more akin to a global man-made casualty type event where the hardening is going to take place over time. The, the distress is going to be appearing, I think, over time as well. There's so much uncertainty in the moment that there is flexibility in the way you put your, your loss picks. So I think the, the hardening is going to respond in a symmetrical way. It's not going to be spectacular hardening like the one you would have seen in the early 2000s. So that hardening is going to take place. This adequacy is going to improve over time. But you should expect casualty classes to the rates to respond multiple the times of, of property rates, which is clearly not, has not been the case so far. By implication, we're talking about rather than being hit by a mega KRW year or something like that, we're talking about lots of slow, painful cuts that happen over a longer period of time, which reminds me, you know, we've spoken about the uncertainty of COVID. I wanted to ask you about the uncertainty around casualty reserving in general, and perhaps it more in particular in the, in the US. Do you think some of that reserve strengthening has got more to, more to come? And will those lost trends, original lost trends, do you think they're going to continue to worsen? Well, I think that there's still quite a way to go. I mean, we all talk of COVID, but COVID is just a catalyst. Yeah. Um, the, because I'm talking here more about the okay, non-pre-COVID US casualty reserving question or global casualty reserving question. So if you look at social inflation, social inflation hadn't, hasn't taken a break during COVID. If anything... COVID has exported, if you wish, social inflation from the casualty area to the property area. The interpretation of, of property contracts has led to, again, huge disputes, and, and we, we, there will be way more. So I think, if anything, COVID is clearly accelerating social inflation. We're going to see more cases. We saw that at the very beginning, where, where there was questions about questioning contracts, insurance contracts, whether contract should not be reviewed with a retrospective, uh, with retroactive, sorry, uh, effect. So, and, and this is, you know, call it social inflation, call it kind of political inflation. So it seems that, you know, I don't want to, to be overly optimistic, but it seems that we've passed that point where people have gone again back to the value of contract, to the value of, of trust in, uh, in, in the contractual relationship. But yet we are still uh, seeing a number of, uh, of cases, they're on the rise. We'll see how many class actions there will be. So I think, you know, the, the reserves adequacy or inadequacy is only going to be appearing over time. We have been in this phase, Dowling called it this uh, cheating phase, where uh, the reserves excess can be released while actually the underlying uh, quality of the pricing is clearly insufficient. So you can yet underprice your business and, and put up good profits. This phase, if you look at the US market, there are some very eloquent graphs looking back to the early 80s, where we see that the reserve releases have come to, to an end. Insurers, reinsurers in the US cannot release anymore. So we are going to enter into this kind of very, very painful phase where the underlying trends uh, will continue, if not accelerate. And, uh, and the buffers uh, that you would have previously simply have disappeared. So I think the COVID should probably accelerate that uh, discovery process of how uh, is when the, the tide is low that you see with swimming naked. Now we're going to, we have entered a, a decreasing uh, tide phase and, and, and we're going to see a few uh, naked swimmers. Oh, well, we should look forward to that. 
from a score perspective, do you think this is now time to go for top line growth and give the same cover as you were giving before? Or are you looking to get more bang for your buck uh, to just increase the profitability of your book that you have now and not grow? Yeah. I mean, as an underwriter, you want to provide value to your clients. So ideally, we would want more bucks for the same cover, if not uh, increase the cover. So this is, this is the underwriter's um, preference. And, and I think this, this is the behavior that would be dictating our approach most of the time as in, in, in principle. Now, the way underwriting year accounts work in interaction with financial year is, is there is clearly some, some lag. So what we're going to see most likely, like in any kind of crisis, is the financial hit comes very quickly. And even though the business that we're underwriting is, is a lot better priced, a lot better underwritten, this profitability will only show in financial accounts two, three years down the line. So I think, you know, what, what we should expect to your question on, on top line growth, our current focus is, is to, and we've been doing that till the summer, is to assess the exposure with the information we have. And that translates into a, a hit. So for the first half 2020, the score group had just over break even uh, for the half year. So that's, you know, disappointing. That's four years in a row uh, after a number of cat events in the US and Japan. So there is a very much of a pain element in the very, very near term. Uh, so our focus, I would say, is not so much to, to grow just yet, is to ensure that we can uh, measure exposures, point one, and point two, that we can obtain returns for the capital we put at work. And this is the kind of discussions, uh, the, the points I was, make, I was making earlier, to get the right bucks for your capital. So bottom line, I would say, and ensuring that, that, we, uh, that we have the right ingredients uh, to, uh, to have the right returns going forward. Now, long term, I mean, growth is, is not a, we don't have a, any growth target at score whatsoever. We have two targets. One is a solvency target and the, the other one is a profitability target. So growth, if you wish, is, is a byproduct of, uh, of, of, of capital and profitability, not a priority uh, as such. I think before getting onto this, the growth agenda, we need, to, uh, we need to really review the portfolios, we need to engage, we need to improve the profitability and, and, and growth will, uh, will follow through. And as I said, on the reinsurance side, the hardening is progressive. It's not a hockey stick progression. So we need to be extremely, um, extremely focused on, uh, on extracting better returns in the very near term. And longer term, look, it's... Um, on one hand, there's going to be a greater risk aversion, which is always good for appetite for insurance. On the other hand, economic activity has been contracting and will continue to contract. And this clearly doesn't help insurance. So we see how, uh, how both play out and how they impact the, the top line. But I can tell you, Mark, the, the top line per se, I think has been way too much of a focus for industry. And we've been seeing the, the price of that in the past couple of years. Do you think fundamental demand for reinsurance is going to be up just because uncertainty is up? Yes, I think so. This is, I mean, this is a sweeping comment, but generally speaking, you should expect appetite for protection to be higher. What we see on the insurance side, so in our specialty insurance operations, sometimes self-insurance is our biggest competitor. A number of clients just do not want to pay up and they increase retentions. They just self-insure question is you know how sustainable is that uh, how long can they sustain that volatility so here in a way this this feeds as well my previous answer to your question is the top line doesn't come in straight away because the initial response from certain clients and sometimes the better ones is actually we won't pay up um, and we will uh, retain more risks 
But given the volatility being on the rise, uh, we were confident that over time they will come back to the market. We've seen lots of capital raising. Most of the ones that, what we've seen has been from incumbents. There have been lots of stories about potential capital raising for a class of 2020 or 2021. What's the nature of that capital raising in your opinion? Do you think it's been more defensive or has it been more potentially aggressive to help fund growth into this harder market? So there are two or three types of capital. If you are speaking equity capital, with a few exceptions, I would say that the vast majority has been really defensive. Of course, with some kind of rhetoric around being stronger, taking advantage. But from what we saw at the beginning or even a bit later, I mean, let's be honest, they've all been defensive. Many, most of them are raising capital when their stock trades at a discount. So you have to be really, really confident that the, the future opportunities are really worth it because you've been diluting your shareholders. So I think if you're talking equity capital, uh, and really we're talking here listed companies much more than uh, private companies, again, with a few exceptions, it has been defensive despite the rhetoric. What's interesting is um, we see different types of capital, uh, namely debt and sidecars. And here I would have a bit of a different view on, on that. Those allow a lot more flexible capital location. They're not dilutive to the shareholders. So the, the, the expected return in front of it is, is, is lower. There is a temptation to look at the class of 2020. Personally, I think it's, uh, it's misleading to look, it, to look at it that way just yet. The, it hasn't really happened yet. That, exactly, it hasn't happened. Uh, it hasn't happened. And, and, the, and I think what has changed as well, if you really look at the last class, it's a class of 2005, and that's 15 years ago. So it's a lot of time. And in that meantime, the volatility of, of investors, of capital markets has shot up significantly. So the time horizon of investors is a lot shorter. So a number of private equity investors do not necessarily look at insurance as, as able to return over three and five years, which is a typical time horizon. And so many of these private equity funds have developed opportunistic or shorter, shorter term funds, which are much better suited to sidecars. So my answer would be a bit different for sidecars. We're seeing a few of them. Now, a number of financial investors in ILS are bruised. So maybe the, uh, the sidecars would have to be fed by new financial investors. But here, I think there is, there is some interesting ones, much more targeted, offensive on the uh, debt and, and sidecar side, much more than the equity side. And what sort of opportunity, if this class of 2020 appears eventually, what sort of opportunity do you think they've got? Is it a broad one or is it very narrow and is it quite focused? So far, it's been very focused. And so far, what you're really talking about, where there is a proper old school hard market, it's contingency, retro, and to some extent, but even then, it's even limit lower property cat. But retro and contingency, you know, proper dislocation, really lack of capital there. And this is proper hard market. But this is quite narrow in the scheme of things. If you look more generally speaking, I think you can look at, at a few areas where clearly there are some opportunities. And, and going back to what we're saying, personally, I think much more short tail classes than long tail classes. Here, the, the returns are much more adequate. There is proper opportunities. Clearly much more personal lines and large industrial lines. I mean, in this COVID crisis, SMEs are the hardest hit. And I think there's going to be a real squeeze for them and, and probably leading to, to higher claims activity. On the personal line side, there's been huge resilience. 
And on the large commercial line side, there's been, side, there's been so much claims in the past you know, five years or so that, that that market has started responding already a couple of years ago, and we see that segment continuing responding. A third type of opportunity that we see is, uh, and again, uh, accelerated by COVID, is the digital players. I mean, I don't know if you've looked at the end financial IPO prospectus. It's amazing. The volumes we're talking about here, the, the transformation of the insurance industry and how it works in the platform, in the broader platform, among other financial services, there's a huge transformation of insurtechs. And I'm talking here of end financial because we, we only talk about the U.S., but of course, in the U.S., the Lemonade IPO was, was amazing, and, and, and you see quite a few other ones coming to the, to the market. So here, I think there is, again, an opportunity, which is not exactly a hard market, but there is a real opportunity on, on digital players. And last but not least, and this is maybe more specific to a player like Score, we haven't really operated with third-party capital. And I think third-party capital has been the privilege, if you wish, of, of Bermuda players, some London market players, and, and many of them got trapped somehow. And I think it does create opportunities for traditional reinsurers, and we're not the only ones trusted by capital markets and with actually fairly limited engagement with capital markets. And so we're clearly seeing an opportunity for us here with third-party capital, as we have been fairly less active relative to our, to our competitors. And does that like to be in short tail or, or could it be like a really nice, diverse, multi-line thing? Yeah, either way, yeah. It can be it can be both, and and depending on 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 investors' uh, appetites, there is. So I think the the real hard traditional old school hard market is on the you know contingency retro market, but there is a a growing opportunity and a hardening market, I would say, in uh, in in other subsets uh, subsegments of the of the reinsurance market. Okay, so we'll have to watch this space and see if uh, anything comes of, of what you've just said. Laurent, Score's been uh, in Lloyd's for quite a while now with the channel syndicate and you've been patiently building your presence there. We've had a lot of reform, there's a lot of change in Lloyd's. Any parts of the Lloyd's blueprint for a start that have caught your interest and and let's have a discussion about your position in in Lloyd's and that that platform and and, and how you see things going there? Yeah, sure, of course. I mean, you've mentioned um, Score Channel, our own syndicate, but we have, we back as well a number of third-party syndicates. And we reinsure a number of Lloyd syndicates. So altogether, to give you an idea, Mark, about 10% of Scoregold PNC's premiums come from Lloyd's. And we are a meaningful capital provider at Lloyd's. So of course, we've, we've been watching very closely and engaging with Lloyd's at, at all levels of our respective organizations. Now, for me, on the, on the blueprint, I've, I've read it carefully. I've been following it. I think there are a number of um, few questions. I'll, make, I'll comment on two of them. One is, I think it sets out very well a global picture of of how Lloyd's operate. It's a marketplace and at the same time uh, behaves, considers itself as a risk taker. And and that I think is is interesting, is not choosing between the two. uh, I think, you know, the motto is is, uh, risk taking in a braver world. Now, I think in the economy that we're in, and, and we have been, and it will only accelerate, you have to be good at what you do. And being a generalist, I think, hasn't paid off so well. And, and what I think is interesting is, is I've, noticed, I've noticed that Lloyd's ambitions are global. They're very large, very ambitious. Question is, what I would be looking forward to is, is how do we define priorities and how do we define focus? And, and that for me is, is, is one area where I think Lloyd's has done already a lot of work and there are some very interesting uh, directions there. 
but where perhaps we need to, you know, lawyers will probably have to choose. And, and being a marketplace is not the same as being a risk taker. There are very fundamental differences. And the second point is, uh, is the value, is the attention to value of insurance, whether it is on the cost front, that the cost of transaction is, is, is of course, a, a key area in the insurance industry, generally speaking, and at lawyers in particular, but as well through innovation. And, and going back to our previous discussion on COVID, for me, you know, if you go back in 2008, the bankers were the villains. I think in, in this crisis, in the COVID crisis, insurers are way more at risk of being the villains. And why that? Because we realize that the product we sell has no value. We think policyholders think it's going to respond, well, actually it doesn't respond. There are those legal battles that are going to be endless and, and, and very often you know, without much merit. The coverage is, is just not there. So the question is, what is the value of insurance cover? And, and, and this for me the, is clearly is, that is very much present in the blueprint. The focus on innovation is a very interesting one. And I think Lloyd's has very much understood that they have to be at the forefront of innovation, like actually Lloyd's has always been, to bring more value into the insurance products. So for me, it's really these two things. It's, it's the positioning of Lloyd's. Is it a marketplace? Is it a risk taker? I think there's still a bit of an ambiguity. And second is what is the value of, of what we sell? What is the value of our market? And, and, and these two areas to me clearly have been drawing my attention and, and driven a number of discussions internally. We had Vicky Carter on this program in a previous episode was talking about someone who's a specialist in providing trade capital to Lloyd syndicates. And obviously you're one of the biggest providers of trade capital still. Is that going to be a very hard renewal coming up for 2021? Yes, I think so. I think so because the, the trade capital business has changed quite a bit over time. There was some very interesting uh, analysis in the blueprint paper back in May showing that um, the nature of the capital backing Lloyd syndicates has completely changed over time. And it's not at all the same to regulate a multinational global organization or a, uh, that provides capital at Lloyd's or a population of wealthy individuals who have their own wealth at work backing insurance risks. And this, I think, is interesting. I mean, Lloyd's, of course, are looking to have more diversity in their capital providers. But the reality today is that the vast majority of those providing capital are overly regulated entities by themselves before speaking of the, of the additional laws layer. And here I think this, it is something I had in mind when I was talking of, you know, laws will have to choose between being a marketplace and a risk taker. I think it's uh, when, you are, when you are a, a risk taker yourself and a global one and a sophisticated one, you do have fairly strict governance already. So when you back those syndicates, you want a disclosure that perhaps goes beyond what you already get. You want a transparency that I think is, uh, has to probably improve over time. And I think the, the whole process of, of, uh, of controlling the syndicates is as well creating uh, some slowness. So I think the, the third-party capital space, I think, is going to be a difficult one in its traditional format, Lloyd's. Whether financial investors will, uh, will re-enter that space is yet to be seen. I mean, the leverage rules are, are far less uh, flexible, far less appealing. Uh, so that would be interesting uh, space to uh, to watch, and I know that Vicky is a is, is a keen uh, advocate and and a great uh, ambassador of, uh, of of syndicates among capital providers. You mentioned about COVID cover. Do you think with this has to be something uh, has to be a public private partnership? Obviously, within score within your home market in France, I'm sure you're very close to the French state in many ways. 
What's the thinking? We've got lots of different future pandemic insurance solutions in the form of a bit like some of the pooling regents we have with state-backed situations like we have with terrorism around the world. Which of those mechanisms do you think is most likely to be a successful one? So far from what I've seen, there isn't really any that has attracted my attention in a way to say, well, that one is really going to take off. I think, you know, there are some interesting ideas around parametric covers. When you talk about SMEs, when you talk about smaller economic agents, the basis risk on on parametric covers, are they really politically acceptable? Are they socially acceptable? I don't think so. But there's been some interesting innovation there. I think, generally speaking, the debate is still highly politicized and probably too much to have really the foundations of a of a stable uh, risk-taking partnership. I think we aspire at SCORE to, to have, a, a, as a reinsurer, to have a, a role to play. And we think that reinsurers have a role to play in those schemes. But we should make no mistake, when you cannot diversify the risk, when you're talking of a global kind of risk, there will be limitations very quickly from the private sector. So you just can't, you can't write a very big limit, can you? Correct. And, and, and then the question is, is do you try to, to mutualize it in with other extreme events, which given the, the nature of these events, actually, you, you don't really mutualize, you, you add huge uncertainties to, to other ones. So it creates a really kind of way to, uh, you know, black boxes. If you provide covers only for this single peril, I think the, the issue becomes then the relevance. And I think it goes to the relevance of the re- insurance industry capital in the scheme of things. There were some very interesting discussions on BI covers in the US when, uh, when there were some rumors that, uh, that the BI wording would be ignored and changed and that insurers would have to pay BI coverage. Then you realize that actually the, the US insurance, surplus, uh, insurance company surplus is tiny compared to the economic uh, amounts at stake. So I think in the end, governments will have to, to, to step in. We'll have to find some, some schemes to have some encouragement to, to risk management behaviors and, and mitigation of, of the risks. But I think it's, it's still very early days to see anything. So you think uh, it's more likely the insurance, insurance industry is going to be more of the conduit for these payments rather yeah. and, and at least for helping with risk management and things like that? And, exactly. and, uh, I hope a bit more than a conduit, uh, but for sure a, an agent of governments I think that could be uh, that could be interesting. Yeah. yeah, because we had a situation in many countries where there was no real mechanism by which a government could pay a subsidy to a business to keep it open. They didn't really have that same relationship. But they didn't. It would have been perhaps would have been easier to, for, for it to be done through their insurance if they had some. Correct. You mentioned about lemonade, and obviously we've got this big IPO coming up with the Ant Financial, the Chinese financial conglomerate. What do you make of this lemonade IPO? I bet, of course, I'm sure you and Denis would wish that a score could trade on the same multiple as, as lemonade, which is, I, I haven't looked at the share price today, but it's, it's many times what uh, most of the industry average is for most publicly quoted insurance companies. Is that some kind of watershed moment? We've been talking about InsurTech for a long time, and lemonade has been kind of the poster child for InsurTech. And now it's had an IPO, and it's been an absolute blast. Hmm. Is this just going to unleash even more investment from tech investors? And are we going to, you know, we've already seen, we could have described this the last four or five years as being a bit of a bubble. Do you think this is just the beginning? Is this like the Netscape IPO, but for InsureTech? You know, for me, there is, a, it goes to a broader theme, which is that there's so much liquidity in the capital out there that there is a huge disconnect between public markets, equity markets, and the underlying economics. 
which means that yes, there is a bubble, the route is coming to the IPO, there is more IPOs coming coming through and so on. So I think it would be probably misleading to to take for face value the current situation on, on, on capital markets. And I can tell you that actually, I think for a, a very short period, the market cap of Lemonade was actually, if not bigger, very close to scores market cap. And, and it didn't escape our attention. So I think, you know, there is perhaps an element of uh, excessive interest, exuberance, if you wish, on the valuation of those companies. But I think we should not be complacent. I think this, this wave of insurtech is not here to stay, it's here to grow, it's here to accelerate. So I cannot comment on the valuations and the multiples of these companies. I, yeah. I don't know what it will be, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that they will get broader. I mean, when I, when I read some of the comments, people saying, well, you know, they're very narrow, they're on, 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 on renters and so on. I think, you know, of course, all of these players are going to, to reach out to much more segments and it will grow. Of course, the profitability will normalize and, and, and they will get to economies of scale and, and risk selection that will make them viable. So personally, I don't, I'm not very comfortable when I see the valuations, but I, I'm very confident that those insurance players, whether they are insurance companies, agents, distributors, will gain market share in, in a tremendous way. And, and if you look back, uh, financial services, banking, the transformation that has been at work over the past 20 years has been huge. And this has taken place outside of the large institutions, banks, insurance companies. And the, uh, the fintech industry is, um, is, 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 is a huge component now. And, and I think it's, it's uh, tempting to dismiss that, to, uh, to miss that elephant in the room. But I think we're going to see uh, more of these. So it's fair to say there's plenty of value being created, whether the valuation is one thing, but there's a lot of value and there's going to be more value being created in this way long into the future. I, I believe so. Absolutely. And, and COVID... And the, the, the drive to a digital economy, the resilience of the digital economy has been proven through, through COVID. I think has been an amazing test case for a lot of these digital businesses. So I'm, I'm hugely optimistic about the future of these businesses. Absolutely. Another very technological business that's a publicly quoted company with a, a fantastic valuation that dwarfs many of its more traditional incumbents is a business like Tesla. We've been seeing them getting into insurance recently. Is that good news for a progressive reinsurer like score or is it something we should be worrying about where this is a business that's saying to the rest of the market we don't really need you we've got tons of capital we've got very um, happy investors who are happy to fund whatever we want to do if they decide they want to do insurance do you think they could do so or do you think they're always going to need a partner and they're always going to need reinsurance look i think it's a very good news whenever there is greater value of the insurance product whenever there is incumbents in an overly regulated industry where barriers to entry are supposed to be super high, it's a good news. And, and if it's good news for our industry, it's, it's going to be good news for those who can you know, take advantage of it. And I'm pretty sure that there will be ways to raise partnerships. There is a risk management know-how. There is ways to manage volatility, which will represent opportunities for the reinsurers who can operate with those, uh, with those players. So for me, it's, um, you know, Google made an announcement in health insurance a few days ago. Yes. There is a number of very interesting disruptions going on. And, and I think that's good news for our industry. It would be bringing more value to the end customer, to the consumer. And what you just said, there's, of course, everybody still needs to manage that. However good they are at insurance, they still need reinsurance because they need to manage their own volatility. Absolutely. And, 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 and you could see it through the wire card scandal recently you know the appetite for bankruptcy the appetite for fraud is decreasing so that the volatility remains there it cannot be completely swallowed so there will be room for risk takers of course 
given your amazing visibility, global visibility around the world in, in all sorts of markets, where's the best place for your money at the moment? Which segment of the, of the market in the world are you most excited about? Are you most sort of... As we speak, and maybe I have a, a bias here again because I lead our specialty insurance operations. It's in our large commercial lines, insurance and fact business. We are much more of a first party than a third party operator. So uh, property rates, energy rates, first party markets on large commercial lines is, is really booming. We have a very technical engineering uh, focus, which means that we have not grown in the past 15 years. So we didn't have the same issues a number of our competitors uh, have been having. So for us, it's, it's quite an interest, inter- interesting market where we, can, we make money on our current book and we expand our market share because a number of our competitors have huge changes in their, in their risk appetite. So uh, we can really demonstrate our cycle management capabilities on large commercial lines. And so that, as we speak, it's running pretty well. You've got your reward for being patient and being disciplined after what, a very long time, I presume. And we've accepted not to grow, exactly. And, and we've resisted this pressure from capital markets, from outside commentators, and, and we've kept our head low and, and it is now paying off, yes. Great. Well, that's good to hear. Good to hear. And I'd like to wish you all the best and look forward to the upcoming renewals. And before we go, I'd like to just thank you for your time and, and make sure you, you, you know you're welcome to come back anytime soon and, and give us an update. So thank you very much for your time. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Thanks for listening. And once again, big thanks to today's supporter, Claims Direct Access. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>